the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. What a week this has been for me. Buried a very close family member uh, earlier this week and know my mom is doing great. She's uh, thriving. Sick to my stomach yesterday. Minutes before the show started was warming up some coffee that I'd poured Earlier in the day, it's actually cream with a slight coffee tint to it, a slight flavor of coffee. Stuff splashed all over the inside of the microwave. So you can't just leave it. Now, some people would, but you can't just leave it. It has to be cleaned up. So I'm trying to clean that up, trying to risk, um, well, alleviate the risk uh, that I run if I'm late coming into the studio because Clark has a stern look that I'm telling you, it puts the fear of God in you when when you get that stern look from, (laughs) from Clark. Anyway, glad to be back in studio, feeling a bit better. And uh, we're going to wind our way through some of the headlines of the day. We're also going to talk with the executive director of Oregon Right to Life with a legislative wrap-up, what to expect in the days ahead, what's to come. All of that when Lois Anderson joins us. Again, she's executive director of Oregon Right to Life. And the recently concluded um, legislative session uh, had some... Troubling elements to it, some of which was prevented from becoming law in Oregon, with one exception. And we're just going to talk with her about uh, the tenor here in Oregon. And what happens now? The legislative session is over until next year. And in terms of the pro-life movement, where's, uh, where's that headed? We're also going to talk in the 5 o'clock hour with Ashley McGuire. She is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. We're going to talk about the uh, recent firing of um, Leanna Wynn. Uh, Dr. Wynn was Planned Parenthood's first doctor to run the organization in five decades. She was just recently let go, putting it mildly. We'll find out why and what that says about the organization and the, the uh, reasons given for her ouster. So all of that's coming up later in today's program. Taking a look at some of the headlines, uh, the Trump administration on Monday announced a sweeping new policy, uh, excuse me, on Tuesday, a sweeping new policy uh, that uh, is tightening restrictions for asylum seekers in a move that could drastically reduce the number of Central American migrants eligible to enter the United States in this way. The new rule, which was published in the Federal Register, is expected to go into effect Uh, It would require most migrants entering through America's southern border to first seek asylum in one of the countries they traversed, whether that's Mexico and Central America or elsewhere on their journey. That is actually the law. And this is essentially saying we're going to follow the law here. In most cases, only if that application is denied, would they then be able to seek asylum in the United States? We'll see how that works out. Uh, If you like your health care, you can keep it. That's your health care plan. That familiar pledge made repeatedly over several years from former President Barack Obama was named the 2013 lie of the year by fact checking website PolitiFact as millions of individuals lost their private insurance and had to switch to costlier options due to changes that were mandated by the Affordable Care Act. Well, on Monday, Democratic presidential frontrunner Joe Biden unveiled his own health care plan. It was somewhat overshadowed by other events and issued a similar sounding promise while speaking at a presidential forum sponsored by AARP in Des Moines, Iowa. 
And effective immediately, family planning clinics that are funded by taxpayers must stop referring women for abortions, the Trump administration said on Monday, or risk forfeit their federal funds. The Health and Human Services Department formally notified clinics that it will begin enforcing the ban on abortion referrals, along with a requirement that clinics maintain separate finances from facilities that provide abortions. And White House Senior Advisor Kellyanne Conway defied a subpoena and failed to appear on Monday at a congressional hearing about allegations she violated federal law, prompting a Democratic threat to hold her in contempt of Congress. And despite numerous liberal politicians and pundits excoriating the Trump administration for delaying the Harriet Tubman $20 bill, former Obama administration officials recently revealed there was no actual delay. While the Obama administration publicly claimed the Tubman bill would be ready in 2020, internally, the Treasury Department recognized that deadline would not actually be met. And the Associated Press reports that that the Federal Trade Commission has authorized a $5 billion fine regarding Facebook's privacy malpractices. The final step is a review inside the Justice Department where the fine is expected to pass muster. Unfortunately, the seemingly massive punishment is in reality pretty mundane. For many companies, a $5 billion fine would be crippling, but Facebook is not most companies. It had nearly $56 billion in revenue last year. This year, analysts expect around $69 billion, according to Zacks. As a one-time expense, the company will also be able to exclude the amount from its adjusted earnings results, the profit figure that investors and financial analysts pay attention to. On a somewhat related note, Senators Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are asking the Federal Trade Commission to investigate social media companies' perceived censorship practices. And the man who killed one woman and injured dozens of others when he rammed his car into a crowd of counter-protesters at a 2017 white nationalist rally in Charlottesville, Virginia, has received an additional life sentence. Judge Richard Moore of Virginia sentenced the perpetrator on Monday to life imprisonment plus 419 years and a fine of $480,000 following the recommendation of a state jury. And according to a local report, a man that authorities say attacked an immigration and customs enforcement detention facility in Tacoma, Washington, over the weekend, repeatedly used the same concentration camp rhetoric, which Socialist Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez injected into U.S. politics last month in a manifesto that he allegedly wrote. And USA Today reports that Chick-fil-A, their Sunday policy, is costing them over a billion dollars per year. However, the moral principle behind it, priceless. USA Today writes, while $1.2 billion in revenue is a great deal to give up, Chick-fil-A's approach to which days a business should be open is not going to change anytime soon. Employees are happy with management, at least according to outside research. Glassdoor listed it as one of the 100 best places to work in 2017. It also has been named one of the country's best fast food operators. Kudos to Chick-fil-A. Their Sunday policy that's costing them a billion dollars a year, but uh, priceless dividends associated with that decision. The Democrat-controlled House of Representatives passed a resolution uh, yesterday evening condemning President Trump's racist, in quotes, remarks against the squad of progressive freshman Democratic lawmakers this past weekend. However, the formal condemnation of President Trump was arguably overshadowed by a floor fight earlier in the day that ended with House Speaker Nancy Pelosi ruled out of order for a breach of decorum for calling two 
the president a racist on the House floor. The unexpected mayhem in Congress, which briefly resulted in the revocation of Pelosi's speaking privileges on the House floor, left commentators and lawmakers stunned. Well, the final resolution passed by a vote of 240 to 187. All Democrats voted yay, with a handful of Republicans joining them. They included Representatives Brian Fitzpatrick, Will Hurd, Fred Upton, and Susan Brooks. Michigan Representative Justin Amash, who recently left the Republican Party after calling for Trump's impeachment, also voted yes. The rest of the Republicans voted no. Trump's remarks initially appeared to have united the Democratic Party when it was struggling with a public feud between Pelosi and the squad. Representatives uh, Ocasio-Cortez, Omar Tlaib, and Presley. But a CBS News interview with the four congresswomen suggested that... um, Hard feelings still remain. We'll continue taking a look at the uh, the news, also anticipating a conversation with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life, with a legislative wrap-up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, anticipating a good conversation with Lois Anderson, executive director of Oregon Right to Life, later this hour. Well, let's see. Sherry Murray, a New York businesswoman who uh, immigrated from Jamaica as a child and is active in state Republican politics, is apparently launching a campaign for the congressional seat held by Democratic Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. In phone interviews, uh, Murray, who is 38, confirmed her intention to run for the New York uh, congressional seat as a Republican. There is a crisis in Queens, she says, and it's called AOC. Uh, She said instead of focusing on us, she's focusing on being famous, mainly rolling back progress and authoring the uh, job killing Green New Deal and killing the Amazon New York deal. Murray takes jabs at AOC in an introductory video that launched her campaign earlier today. Now, she has um, traditionally, historically in New York City, she has very little chance of succeeding in her efforts. But given the controversy uh, surrounding AOC, we'll see what uh, what kinds of headway she's able to make in that effort. Meanwhile, independent-minded may best describe the life and judicial career of Justice John Paul Stevens, nominated by a Republican president to sit on the Supreme Court, but who in his three-plus decades on the bench staked out generally liberal views on the law and the Constitution. Stevens died yesterday in Florida after a brief illness. He was 99 and earlier this year released a memoir of his years on the bench. The oldest member of the court before he retired in 2010, Stevens had been a a difficult justice to peg almost from the day he was first nominated some 35 years earlier. On the bench, Stevens is remembered for taking out uh, a case uh, um, What was only presented to him, refusing to issue sweeping pronouncements on judicial philosophy, this sort of minimalist approach earned him both praise and criticism, but colleagues say he never swayed. Again, uh, Stevens died Tuesday in in Florida after a brief illness. He was 99. And the president of Planned Parenthood, the largest abortion provider in the U.S., was removed from her position On Tuesday, after just eight months, Dr. Leanna Wen tweeted that Planned Parenthood's board had ended my employment at a secret meeting. We were engaged in good faith negotiations about my departure based on philosophical differences over the direction and future of Planned Parenthood, end quote. She later posted a copy of a letter to Planned Parenthood officials in which she said that she was leaving the organization sooner than she had hoped. And El Chapo, Mexico's most notorious drug lord, uh, uh, was sentenced today to life in prison. 
Uh, he went quietly when he uh, got the word in a New York courtroom today. That's one of the biggest questions that uh, Joaquin Guzman, is, uh, who was sentenced to New York on Wednesday, the highly anticipated hearing, uh, was his last chance to speak public- publicly rather before spending the rest of his life behind bars at a maximum security U.S. prison. Guzman is 62 years old. He was convicted in February on multiple conspiracy counts and an epic drug trafficking case. The guilty verdict at an 11-week trial triggered what the government says is a well-justified mandatory sentence of life without parole. Representative Al Green filed articles of impeachment against President Trump on Tuesday under a process that forced the House to vote by the end of the week. That vote took place today. We'll tell you how that turned out in just a few moments. And Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer told a small group of reporters on Tuesday that he'll support legislation proposed by Representative Sheila Jackson Lee and Senator Cory Booker to establish a commission to study reparations for slavery. And a federal judge in New York on Tuesday signed an order permanently blocking the Trump administration from adding a citizenship question to the 2020 sentence days after the president gave up on his efforts to get such a question on next year's census. The Trump administration is shifting most of the Bureau of Land Management's personnel in its Washington, D.C. headquarters out west by the end of next year. Over 80 percent of the agency's D.C. staff will be relocated further west to states such as Arizona, Colorado, New Mexico and Utah. And over months of work, FBI agents painstakingly researched every claim Christopher Steele made about Trump's possible collusion with Russia and assembled their findings into a spreadsheet like document. One source estimated the spreadsheet found upward of 90 percent of the dossier's claims to be either wrong, non-verifiable or open source intelligence found with a Google search. I'm sure we'll be hearing more on that. And new investigative documents released by a state agency have given fresh life to lingering questions about the marital history of Representative Ilhan Omar and whether she once married a man, possibly her own brother, to skirt immigration laws. And the European Union will launch an antitrust investigation into whether Amazon is misusing its dual role as both a marketplace for independent sellers and a retailer of its own products. In particular, the EU said its probe will look at the agreements between Amazon and its sellers, which allow Amazon's retailers, um, retail business rather, to analyze and use third-party seller data. The probe will also examine how Amazon uses its data to pick which seller wins the buy box which is prominently displayed on the Amazon site and allows customers to add items directly to their shopping carts. That will be interesting to observe. And on this day in 1945, following Nazi Germany's surrender, President Harry S. Truman, Soviet leader Joseph Stalin, and British Prime Minister Winston S. Churchill began meeting at Potsdam in the final Allied summit of World War II. And on this day in 1955, Disneyland had its opening day in Anaheim, California. On this day in 1996, TWA Flight 800, a Europe-bound Boeing 747, explodes and crashes off Long Island, New York, shortly after departing John F. Kennedy International Airport, killing all 230 people on board. On this day in 1997, Woolworth Corporation announces it is closing its 400 remaining five-and-dime stores across the country, ending 117 years of business. And on this day in 2014, all 298 passengers and crew aboard Malaysia Air Flight 17 are killed when the Boeing 777 is shot down over rebel-held eastern Ukraine. 
Well, the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives uh, today voted, in fact, moments ago, voted to hold Attorney General William Barr and Commerce Secretary Wilbur Ross in criminal contempt for allegedly stonewalling congressional probes into the Trump administration's efforts to add a citizenship question to the 2020 census. The vote was 230 to 198, with four Democrats and all Republicans voting no. Michigan Representative Justin Amash, now an independent, voting yes. It remained highly likely that Barr and Ross will face charges uh, as those would uh, have to be pursued by the uh, uh, Trump administration's Justice Department, which Barr heads. When Holder was ultimately held in contempt in 2012, his Justice Department under President Barack Obama did not pursue charges either. So it's unlikely that Barr and Ross will face charges. In one spirited moment, Representative Mark Meadows, Republican out of North Carolina, cited House Oversight Committee Chairman Elijah Cummings' own words in 2012 when House Republicans were seeking to hold then-Attorney General Eric Holder in contempt. Holding someone in contempt of Congress is one of the most serious and formal actions our committee can take, Meadows began. It should not be used as a political tool to generate press as part of an election year witch hunt. Now, who is responsible for that? Quote, it's not Jordan. It's not Cheney. It's Chairman Elijah Cummings. End quote. Well, for his part, Cummings said the criminal contempt resolution is about protecting democracy and protecting the integrity of this body. So things change in the course of a year or two. It's better. It's bigger rather than the census. Cummings declared, I do not come to this floor lightly. Well, the sparks flew just a day after House of Representatives members played host to a dramatic floor flight before finally passing a resolution condemning the president for making a racist comments in their words. The spat saw House Speaker Nancy Pelosi being ruled out of order and briefly losing her speaking privileges, as well as uh, something of a gavel drop moment when the presiding chair abandoned his post in frustration. Oh, this is just more political theater, Ross uh, said. Maria Bartiromo was the um, host of the program. He was speaking uh, before on Wednesday morning. It doesn't really have to be have any substantive basis. We produced to the committee more than 14,000 pages of documents. What's at issue here is about a dozen documents, roughly 15 pages, all of which the courts didn't find necessary to make their conclusion. Well, in a letter to Pelosi on Wednesday, Barr and Ross slammed the House panel's decision to recommend the House wield a criminal contempt authority, even though we remain willing to work towards an appropriate accommodation, notwithstanding the privileged status of the documents at issue and the active litigation that remains pending in this manner. We urge that the House postpone the contempt vote in order to allow the constitutionally mandated accommodation process to continue, Barr and Ross wrote. And we respectfully remind the committee that the a constitutionally required obligation to engage in good faith accommodation cuts both ways. Well, the vote was held today. It did not um, uh, succeed in quite the way hoped, or at least there was a lot of controversy around it. But the con- criminal contempt charges uh, moved forward and is unlikely to um, be pursued by the Justice Department. Up next, we're going to talk with Lois Anderson. As you might recall, the legislature here in Oregon met and sine die was declared just a couple of weeks ago. She's going to join us with a legislative wrap-up. So stick around. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast.
is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 36 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, if you haven't noticed, the Oregon legislature was in session, but they ain't anymore. Sine die was declared a couple of weeks ago. But you might wonder, what happened to some of the legislation that we talked about? Were we successful in preventing it from becoming law? The things that we supported, was it successful becoming law? In any event, uh, joining us is the Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life, Lois Anderson. She joins us with a legislative wrap-up. There's some good news and some things uh, to consider moving forward. And uh, we'll, we'll talk a little bit about what's happening through the summer as well. Lois Anderson, thank you so much for joining us. I always appreciate being on with you, Georgine. Let me first just ask you to give your general impression from a pro-life standpoint of this latest, now concluded uh, legislative session. Whoa. Well, it was a rough one. Um, there's just no candy coating it. It was, it was very difficult and, uh, we, we had to work very hard, um, against some very dangerous bills. What role does the general public, I mean, oftentimes you'd come on the program, we would talk about some of these specific bills and we'll get into those specifics in a moment. And we're encouraging them to communicate with lawmakers. How effective is that in at least, um, uh, perhaps pricking the conscience of lawmakers in holding them accountable for the positions they hold on some of these really important life issues? Well, um, I answered an email not too long ago toward the end of session that kind of was asking the, the same question, someone that had been repeatedly emailing their legislator and their legislator can repeatedly told them they didn't agree. And the, the, first, the first thing is, is that we're responsible to tell the truth. So even if it's not received, even if it's not paid attention to, our responsibility when we know something is wrong or we know there's a bad piece of legislation is to speak out and tell the truth about it. And then there's a lot of unknowns in the legislative process. I mean, if you just have to look a little bit at all the crazy stuff that happened in the last couple of weeks, um, there's just a lot that happens behind the scenes, conversations, and we don't really know what kind of impact that email, that phone conversation, that letter from a constituent has. And so it's, it's our responsibility to just keep encouraging people. And I really want to let people know that even if they don't get a response, they've, they have done something. It does make an impact, um, especially when we're competing against a lot of other issues. If they never hear from any pro-life people, mm-hmm. they will assume that Oregonians don't care about these issues. And they're hearing, you know, the there's sometimes some very interesting things that that will garner a lot of feedback, like daylight savings time or fluoride in the water, um, that that they'll get thousands and thousands of emails or phone calls about. And then if they only get two or three about a pro-life issue, I'm not trying to diminish those other issues, but I'm just trying to give some perspective yes. in that um, the numbers do matter. It is important. Um, and fundamentally, though, it, it's just our responsibility as believers and as truth tellers to um, to communicate that. Well, let's talk about some of the legislation that we were specifically concerned about. Uh, <laughs> one is Senate Bill 579. It passed both chambers, regrettably, and that removes existing waiting periods uh, for those who are near death and allows for same-day physician-assisted suicide. It's hard to even imagine that that's the case. Can you remind us of what this will do and what we might do to protect people that we care about? 
Well, it will allow um, a person who can can get a diagnosis or an opinion from a physician that they're at the end of their life within uh, 15 days or um, uh, or quicker than that, I guess. <laughs> Sometimes the words don't quite come when you're talking about end of life. It's such a sensitive private time for most people. Um, sometimes, honestly, it can just be a challenge to make sure that I'm using the right word. Mm-hmm. But, um, so it, it really endangers people even more at the very end and most vulnerable time of their life. There's not, there's not a regulation that has to actually be their family doctor. It can be just any attending physician. So it's, it's a very um, dangerous and it takes advantage of people at a very vulnerable time. So it's very important that people, um, that for themselves and their family members, complete the correct portions of an advanced directive. And we've been working on an updated form. It's almost ready. I'm sorry that I can't say it's on the, the website right now. Um, but we're trying to be very careful because it is a legal document. So if, if there are individuals that have questions about that, first of all, they should have a, a good attorney, um, a pro-life attorney that they can talk to, but they can call and ask us questions and we can provide um, a form and some feedback on filling out that form. Because you need a healthcare representative that knows your values. And um, I've heard somebody say that you should appoint your most sassy child or your most sassy um, uh, relative because you need somebody who is not going to be afraid of a doctor, is not going to be afraid to advocate for you when you are in these vulnerable states. So that, that is very important. And this will allow people who um, feel like they're at the end of their life and they have no more value to commit suicide um, without really any scientific evidence that that we're very good at deciding when people are going to die. Now, we started the the beginning of the session with five dangerous physician-assisted suicide bills. Four of them were prevented from becoming law, and that includes House Bill 2217 that allowed uh, lethal injections. Tell us about the four victories as we're perhaps lamenting the one loss. Yeah, well, um, really the... the, um, the other, those other bills were kind of the same, a different version of 2217. So we we believe that this will be back. But it's a very interesting story about why I why sort of the turning point um, because this bill was on the train tracks and was heading toward the Senate, and we didn't see really any way to stop it. Um, and what this bill does is it changed it changed the um, language around what kind of medication and how you could take that medication when you requested assisted suicide, and it does allow lethal injection. And interestingly enough, a doctor who support, supports physician-assisted suicide, I think who supports euthanasia, I can say that, sent out an email after this bill passed the House, which it did, saying, hey, this bill's going to pass. Um, isn't this great? I think we should start talking about how we're going to implement it. And he laid out a procedure for legally injecting someone with poison to kill them. Mm. And it was so shocking to even the proponents and supporters of physician-assisted suicide that they voluntarily brought it forward to the Senate committee and said, even, even we can see that this, that this says a lethal injection, that's not what we want 
And so we have to go back to the drawing board and make changes. And so we no longer support the bill. It was a it was a very interesting moment for us in legislative history that their own people basically torpedoed the bill. Yeah. Um, but it also tells us that they're going to be back to try to figure out a way. They really want more people to have access um, to assisted suicide that may not have it now. So. Unfortunately, um, we'll have to be watching for that next session. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so grateful that Oregon Right to Life is standing at the ready for whatever legislative session we're talking about to make us aware and to advocate for life in these uh, these circumstances. One interesting thing happened toward the end of the legislature and uh, working with pro-life members, um, you worked to try to bring the Born Alive Infant Protection Act back to the attention of the House uh, Oregon doesn't, uh, from my understanding, doesn't have any law that protects children who survive abortions. What happened in that last-minute effort? Well, you're correct. We we have no protective legislation, no protective laws for for um, children who survive abortions. And so, um, yes, our wonderful pro-life members in the House, uh, Representative Sherry Springer, led this effort, and they did something. It's called pulling the bill to the floor, and basically it's a procedural vote, which is used very commonly in the legislative process to um, force a vote on a bill that the majority has chosen to um, stuff in a corner or put in somebody's pocket and not deal with. And this bill would um, require that a child who survives an abortion is given the same medical care that a child that is um, born, um, who is not a survivor of abortion, but is, who is, is born through the regular procedure, that they would be equally protected and given the same kind of medical care. Seems like a very reasonable, they're trying to do it at the federal level too, which you see Nancy Pelosi and her crew continuing to oppose this law. It's, most people, was, no matter where they, what they feel about earlier abortions, feel that this is a reasonable law and a reasonable practice. Mm-hmm. We're going to continue our conversation in a moment, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking with Lois Anderson, Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. 52 minutes after 4 o'clock is our time. Continuing a conversation with Lois Anderson. She is Executive Director of Oregon Right to Life. We're giving something of a uh, legislative um, wrap-up, an overview of what happened, what didn't happen, and what we might expect in the the, uh, days ahead. We talked a little bit about uh, Senate Bill 579 and the other bills that similarly had to do with physician-assisted suicide, an effort to... Uh, protect uh, children who survive abortions in the state of Oregon because we have no law to protect them. And that's uh, something I imagine will be taken up again next legislative session. Uh, Yes, we'll be introducing that along um, with other other bills that we've been working on, like a conscience protection for pro-life medical professionals. Now, some might assume that Oregon Right to Life uh, has a season when the legislature is in session, and that's the work that generally is being done, unless there's an election season. But you all are busy this summer as well, presenting a pro-life message all across the state of Oregon. Tell us a little bit about the Education Foundation and what you all are doing uh, and what uh, our our neighbors are doing across the state uh, to continue to share that pro-life message. 
Yes, it is so refreshing to be able to come out of a legislative session and start to work with our wonderful volunteers and fair coordinators throughout the state because uh, we have um, beautiful materials, interactive displays and information, videos, um, our precious pockets, which are tiny little uh, 12-week baby models that are tucked in handmade um, pockets and with a card that has information about their their development. And we get to have the opportunity to have compassionate conversations and interactions with thousands and thousands mm-hmm. of people across the state. And these really are life-changing conversations. It's life-changing information that um, from a child who hears a baby's heartbeat on our phone for the first time or who takes home that little model and begins to understand what they look like when they were developing, or a woman who has um, experienced an abortion that uh, takes home a brochure from an abortion healing ministry. Uh, those are just a few of the things that, that we offer at these booths. And um, we just shift off some things to Clasp County. The Lynn County Fair is going on right now. We're going to be at the Fiesta Mexicana and the Fish Fest this summer. Um, pretty pretty much we try to be everywhere uh, across the state because we know that um, this information and these conversations um, result in safe life. Oh, and absolutely. it's just a wonderful opportunity. It's been a while, but I've, I've manned those booths at the State Fair and at the <laughs> Multnomah County Fair. And one of the things I yes. enjoy the most, because we had the fetal models where it shows the stages yes. of development, to watch the children, it's like they immediately get <laughs> No, they they get it, and um, the people are so amazed to actually see a model of what's happening in utero, and it just is a reminder uh, of the the miracle of birth and what we are trying to protect. So it's just a joyous time. Of course, there are those who might be a little upset by all of that, but those were fewer and farther between than those who are really fascinated to to see the images and to really think about what uh, the this whole debate has been about. Yes, very true. And we see even, you know, those hostile people, if they're willing, if they're willing to interact in any kind of conversation, we're probably giving them information that they have never Mm -hmm. considered before. And that that's also important, because a lot of times when people are hostile, they're covering over some kind of hurt that's happened in their past. And we want to be loving and compassionate toward people. um, Because we do love life. We love all human beings. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Now, I should mention that these booths and displays, they're organized and they're staffed by Oregon Right to Life local chapters. There are local chapters around the state and people who are interested in becoming more active. That's one way to go about doing that. It really is. And it may sound scary, but it's really not to to be um, in a booth. Um, There's lots of materials and ways that you can interact with people. And it's a wonderful way to, to kind of get your foot in the door Uh, And especially, I will say, if there are people out there that are frustrated or they feel like they're not making an impact, spend a couple of hours in a booth and you will not feel that way anymore. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I would absolutely agree. In your latest uh, newsletter, you reminded us of the rich history of the advocates that have made a difference in the state of Oregon with regard to Oregon Right to Life and just pro-life issues. Um, Dr. Russell Sacco passed away, who was one of the uh, individuals who was an unsung pro-life hero, one of the founding members of Oregon Right to Life. Can you just give us a, a brief comment on who Dr. Russell Sacco was and 
um, just to give him a moment in the sun uh, to just acknowledge the role that he's played uh, that has a legacy that extends even into today. Oh, what, what a wonderful man. I only had the opportunity to meet him a couple of brief times, but if anybody has ever seen or worn um, a precious feet pin, the mm-hmm. tiny little pins that are the model of, of a baby at somewhere around 11 weeks, um, 11 to 12 weeks. This was inspired by Dr. Sacco when he um, was working in a lab. Um, there were uh, babies who were being preserved uh, but in different um, stages of gestation, and he actually was uh, able to take measurements and, and handle them, and he took a picture of the tiny little feet in between his fingers, and it just got him to thinking about how dramatic that was and how perfect those feet were. And so he worked with um, Heritage House to develop that pin, and those, I, I, can't, I can't think of the number. I mean, it's hundreds of thousands, probably millions of mm-hmm. those pins that have, have been distributed and have made an impact as a witness. Um, just a quiet witness of the humanity of an unborn child at a very, very early stage. Um, he was a very passionate um, man and outspoken on behalf of the vulnerable. Um, but again, like you said, he's unsung. Most people don't know his story. But I encourage people to, to Google him because there's several pro-life organizations. And Liberty Pike, our communications director, wrote a beautiful article about him and so if you want to know more, I encourage you to um, to go on the internet and find a good story yeah. um, and about him. Yeah. Again, Dr. Russell Sacco, that's S-A-C-C-O, if you're interested in yes. following that up. Well, Lois, I appreciate your commitment to the unborn and serving in our community, and I look forward to our next conversation. Thank you, Georgie, and I do too. Thank you so much. Coming up, we're going to talk with Ashley McGuire. She's a senior fellow with the Catholic Association. We'll talk about the firing of the um, first doctor to run Planned Parenthood in five decades, who was just recently fired. We'll tell you more about that and what it says about the organization and its funding. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Clark Hilton is engineering Today's program. Well, just eight months into her tenure, Leanna Wynn, Dr. Wynn, was fired as Planned Parenthood's president. That was on Tuesday. She succeeded Cecile Richards uh, last November, but she, a woman of color and a committed leftist, wasn't radical enough for the nation's largest abortion provider. Well, given that Planned Parenthood uh, rakes in more than $500 million every year from American taxpayers, many of whom view abortion as a tragedy to be ended, This is pretty significant news. Well, Dr. Uh, uh, Wynn said in a Twitter post that her fate had been decided at a secret meeting. She later issued a statement saying she was leaving because the new board chairs and I have philosophical differences over the direction and future of Planned Parenthood. The new board leadership was determined that the priority of Planned Parenthood moving forward is to double down on abortion rights advocacy with the landscape changing dramatically in the last several months and the right to safe legal abortion, sort of an oxymoron. Um, safe legal abortion care under attack like never before. I understand the shift in the board's prioritization. After she was appointed president, multiple senior officials at Planned Parenthood 
have also left. Well, joining us to help put this into perspective is Ashley McGuire. She is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association and the author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. Ashley writes and speaks widely about religious freedom, Catholicism and women. She joins us today to talk about this most recent development, the ouster of Dr. Wynn. Thank you so much for joining us, Ashley. Hey, thanks for having me. Well, this is significant um, for a number of reasons, but let's start uh, start there. Dr. Wynn was appointed. She's the first doctor they've had in about 50 years to head up the organization. Why, from your perspective, is it significant that she was essentially let go? Well, I think the most important thing is that she wanted to focus on making Planned Parenthood, or at least keeping up the illusion that Planned Parenthood is about women's health, not just abortion. And she was fired because of that. She wasn't emphasizing abortion enough. And so I think this is, we're really seeing Planned Parenthood put down their cards. And the fact that they're sort of unafraid of the PR ramifications of this, um, of firing, as you pointed out, a woman of color, an immigrant, a doctor, the first doctor they've had in five decades run the organization, um, goes to show that what they really care about is abortion, abortion, and abortion. But uh, Ashley McGuire, we have been told time and time again that abortion is just sort of a side note, that uh, what Planned Parenthood really is about is women's health care. And most of us don't consider uh, removing uh, the developing human child in utero health care um, but that that's not really what they're all about, despite the fact that they are the uh, the largest provider of abortion in the nation. So this, as you pointed out, betrays the core value of the organization in a way uh, that's more upfront and open than we've uh, been led to believe in the past. Yeah, and I think that it's not coincidental that this happened within 24 hours of a, a court ruling that the Trump administration's moved to say that if you're an abortion provider, or if you're referring for abortions, you can't, you don't qualify for something like $60 million of, um, of family planning funds, of women's health funding. Um, so they're really sort of taking a beating. And I think, you know, you're absolutely very schizophrenic about what Planned Parenthood is doing. You're trying to say, oh, abortion is just like a tiny fraction of what we do. But at the same time, they're basically saying this is actually our biggest priority and we're willing to fire again, um, a minority woman, a doctor, uh, who has tried to emphasize or make Planned Parenthood emphasis uh, be mostly about women's health and not abortion um, because of it. And I think I think this has to do with the election, too. I think they see the writing on the wall, and they know that um, the American people are really starting to show in the polls that they don't like the abortion extremism of Planned Parenthood. And Planned Parenthood really depends on this sort of racket that they have going with the government where they get half a billion dollars, which they then turn around and use to lobby elected officials to make sure that that money spigot stays open for them. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciated what uh, Liberty Council's founder and chairman Matt Staver says. He he writes that Planned Parenthood is in turmoil because it's losing tens of millions of dollars of taxpayer money. Apparently, the president was not radical enough for this giant abortion mill. Abortion has nothing to do with health care, as you and I would agree. It is intentional. Uh, the intentional act of killing a human being in Planned Parenthood performed nearly one half of all abortions in the U.S. in 2017. That's an average of 911 abortions every day. That means today and yesterday and the day before. 
This is human genocide for profit. And for the uh, the board of Planned Parenthood to acknowledge openly out of what I think you were right to describe as something of desperation says a great deal about the effective advocacy for life that we're seeing all across the country and the, the sense that they have that their privilege is perhaps starting to decline. Yeah, and, and I think it shows how much they're driven by profit. Yes. You know, I mean, they, they could have said, you know, when the government said, if you are doing or referring abortions, you can't, you're not qualified for this. I think it was something like $60 million. Um, they could have just said, okay, we'd rather have the funding and stop providing the abortions, but they care more about the money. And I think it's just, you know, as the classic adage goes, follow the money. I mean, they are motivated by money and abortion is what pads their bottom line. And uh, they're, you know, what the quote that you just read was, was good. I mean, it, the fact that this woman, who is truly, if you look at her Twitter feed, today I spent some time looking at her old tweets. She's a complete radical. I mean, she's like attacking crisis pregnancy centers. I mean, we already solved that debate at the Supreme Court. Um, you know, she's criticizing the Trump administration. She's no moderate. And the fact that she wasn't radical enough for them shows just how radical Planned Parenthood has become. And again, I think the sort of it's like the mask is off. Like maybe this is them basically saying we're not going to pretend anymore, uh, you know, taking, you know, taking off the fighting gloves and saying, like, this is what we're really about. And it's about politics and abortion and money. And that is what Planned Parenthood is about. They have been proven time and time again um, or, or called out on their lies about the services that they provide. They don't provide ultrasounds. They only provide ultrasounds if it is to basically get the gestational age of a baby for an abortion. You can't just go to Planned Parenthood and get an ultrasound. You only get an ultrasound if you A, pay for it, and B, if it's to find out how far along your baby is so they know what kind of an abortion to do. They don't do mammograms, as Cecile Richards was forced to admit under oath before Congress. Um, this is not a women's health organization. And now it seems like they're basically, I mean, they just fired their president because she was trying to rebrand it as a women's health organization. Mm. Well, it will be interesting to see what sort of social justice warrior they replace her with um, and whether or not science will be relevant in um, his or her reign as Planned Parenthood's next director. No, it's true. I mean, this is very bad PR for Planned Parenthood. And whoever is coming in next is going to be in a very difficult spot um, because they're going into an election year when Planned Parenthood is probably politically weaker than it's ever been because the Trump administration has just been really taking them on. Um, and I, I think, you know, for the first time, really, we've seen a significant defunding of Planned Parenthood. It's not taking away the half a billion dollars of taxpayer money that they get as just a sort of check every year. But that $60 million that they lost is, is a significant strike at their bottom line. Yeah. Um, and, and so, yeah, I mean, it's going to be a tough, tough job for whoever's coming in next. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I appreciate your keeping an eye on what's happening there and the work that you're doing. Ashley McGuire, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate it very much. Again, Ashley McGuire is a senior fellow with the Catholic Association and the author of Sex Scandal, The Drive to Abolish Male and Female. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Back in a moment. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 
We're back 19 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Hey, by the way, tomorrow on the program, I'm looking forward to a conversation with Lysandra Barnes. The name may be familiar to you if you've ever been to an Ignite conference. She's been one of the presenters there for uh, several years. So she is working on her um, Ph.D., and uh, she's going to be talking with us about her latest book, Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself After Adversity. She has quite a story to tell, and this remarkable young woman will tell it uh, tomorrow on the program. We're also going to have an opportunity to talk with Max McLean. He is presenting C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert. Uh, he'll be joining us on Thursday in the uh, second hour of the program, and I'll just give you a little heads up. Uh, my understanding is we have 10 tickets that we're going to be giving away for the performance on the 2nd or 3rd of August. If you've not seen uh, McLean do one of his performances of C.S. Lewis, uh, let me encourage you to uh, uh, to join us. And yes, I will be there uh, for that. So I'm really looking forward to talking with him and uh, even more so the C.S. Lewis presentation coming up on the 2nd and 3rd of August, The Most Reluctant Convert. Uh, C.S. Lewis is the presentation, so that will be the lineup for tomorrow's program. We were talking a few moments ago about um, Planned Parenthood, and Liberty Council is asking a California federal court to issue summary judgment and forego the trial regarding the claims against Sandra Merritt in Planned Parenthood's multi-million dollar civil lawsuit against her. Now, you might recall uh, that she um, and her colleague exposed Planned Parenthood for violating um, the rules and uh, certainly um, making conflicting statements about what they are doing. Well, the summary judgment hearing was held today in San Francisco. Um, the chief litigation counsel at Liberty Council was uh, presented the arguments on behalf of Merritt. Planned Parenthood filed a retaliatory 15-count civil suit against her, seeking $16 million as punishment for her undercover investigation that revealed and exposed the largest abortion provider's unethical and potentially illegal profiting from human body parts being sold. These are baby body parts. In the lawsuit, Planned Parenthood is using the racketeer-influenced and corrupt organization law or RICO as a weapon to stop the undercover videos produced by the Center for Medical Progress that exposed, uh, exposed maybe both applies, exposed Planned Parenthood's uh, trade in baby body parts. The U.S. Supreme Court ruled several years ago that RICO cannot be used against pro-life picketers to silence free speech, yet that is the motive of Planned Parenthood in this case. So we're hopeful that it will uh, be successful. Liberty Council, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, Represents Merritt has demonstrated that Planned Parenthood has no evidence to support its retaliatory lawsuit. So they are encouraged. There are no damages, no legal uh, basis for the suit, which is only designed to silence uh, Merritt's First Amendment rights. So <clears throat> those arguments were made earlier today and we'll certainly follow up on that story uh, as a ruling ultimately is made. Meanwhile, the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives passed a resolution yesterday evening condemning the president's racist remarks, as they put it this weekend, although the moment was largely overshadowed by a pretty dramatic uh, floor fight uh, earlier in the day that ended with House Speaker Pelosi ruled out of order for a breach of decorum. (coughs) Excuse me while I take a sip. That will help. Well, the unexpected mayhem, and I think that's the right word to describe uh, Congress, that briefly resulted in the revocation of Pelosi's speaking privileges on the House floor left commentators and lawmakers pretty stunned. 
Uh, Wall Street Journal columnist Kimberly Strassel said, so Democrats vote to break House rules and decorum so that they can call Trump out on decorum. Surreal, end quote. Well, the final resolution entitled House Resolution 489, condemning President Trump's racist comments directed at members of Congress, passed by a vote of 240 to 187. All Democrats voted yay, with a handful of Republicans joining them. Representatives Brian Fitzpatrick, Will Hurd, Fred Upton, and Susan Brooks among them. Michigan Representative Justin Amash, who recently left the Republican Party after calling for the president's impeachment, also voted yes. The rest of Republicans voted no. Well, the resolution asserted that the president's racist comments have legitimized um, fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color. The document mentioned Thomas Jefferson, Alexander Hamilton, James Madison, and quoted luminaries like Benjamin Franklin, President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, President John F. Kennedy, and Ronald Reagan. Uh, President Trump had tweeted on Sunday that unnamed Democrat congresswomen should go back to go back rather and fix the corrupt and crime infested places from which they came and then come back and show us how it's done. Now, it was uh, believed that he meant to the countries of their origin, although he later suggested that he was referring to the uh, uh, the land from which their constituents sent them. He later um, all but affirmed he was referring to representatives Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Ilhan Omar, Rashida Tlaib, and um, uh, Ayanna um, Presley, all of whom, except for Omar, were born in the United States. Well, what Democrat leaders envisioned as a moment of Democrat unity turned out to be a striking display of disarray. Pelosi spoke in favor of the resolution on the floor. She used frank and unsparing terms about the president's comments and soon became the story herself. There is no place anywhere for the president's words, which are not only divisive, but dangerous and have legitimized an increased fear and hatred of new Americans and people of color. Now, interestingly enough, the president's comments were generated by the same accusation that he was making of these four uh, individuals, these four House members, suggesting that their comments were incendiary and endanger those uh, to whom their uh, comments were directed. So it was sort of a surreal moment, as the Wall Street Journal columnist put it. Pelosi went on to say, it's so sad because you would think that there would be a, uh, a given that we would universally in this bodily body just say, of course, of course. So Pelosi continued her voice rising. There's no excuse for any response to those words, but a swift and strong unified condemnation. Every single member of this institution, Democrat and Republican, uh, should join us in condemning the president's racist tweets. Now, again, interestingly, when um, uh, members of this group of four made uh, incendiary comments against Jews in Israel, uh, Pelosi refused then to resoundingly um, condemn those statements, which made for Republicans and some observers uh, her statements in this situation ring somewhat hollow. She went on to say to do anything less would be a shocking rejection of our values and a shameful abdication of our oath of office to protect the American people. I urge a unanimous vote. Well, it went on from there, the back and forth in which some of her comments were condemned as being unworthy of the House floor and, in fact, breaking House rules. So the rules were changed in order to make it possible for her statements uh, to be um, in order after the floor fight Erupted. Well, there were escalating tensions on Capitol Hill in that floor fight. Pelosi spoke in favor of the resolution condemning uh, racism and the words used by the gentlewoman, says one uh, member, Denny Hoyer, uh, in a decision that technically banned Pelosi from speaking, saying the words used by the gentlewoman from California contained an accusation of racist behavior on the part of the president. The words should not be used in debate. And there are rules that govern. We're not talking about the Constitution, but we're talking about House rules. 
that determine what can and cannot be said and, and what um, what terms can be used. Well, the Democrat-controlled House then voted along party lines not to strike her words from the record and voted separately to restore her speaking privileges. One Democrat in Congress said, we're going to defend our speaker. Well, the dramatic episode, which to you and I as onlookers who are not confined by the rules of the House might think rather silly, were meaningful in that these rules are established to govern uh, how communication occurs on the floor. But this dramatic episode began when she prepared remarks condemning the president. Well, the back and forth took place. The condemnation stood uh, and the vote was uh, fell largely on party lines with a few exceptions. Meanwhile, the House of Representatives uh, today voted to set aside a resolution by Representative Al Green in response to all of that the day before to introduce articles of impeachment against the president. This is the third time the Houston area lawmaker has taken a shot at impeaching the president, but the first since Democrats regained control of the House. Lawmakers voted 332 to 95 uh, to table his resolution, which was widely opposed by House Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other top Democrats worried the measure would force vulnerable swing district lawmakers into peril ahead of the 2020 elections. Now, the bipartisan vote shelved any chance of bringing forth articles of impeachment against the president in the near future. So this essentially put an end uh, to it until at least after the election. Now, the president has committed an impeachable uh, offense. Green said on the floor of the House earlier on Wednesday. Yesterday, we condemned him for that. Today is our opportunity to punish him. Well, uh, a tweet uh, about members of the House is not an impeachable offense. I mean, what happens on uh, Twitter is not impeachable. Nonetheless, those those were the grounds on this attempt that uh, the representative sought to impeach the president. 137 Democrats voted in favor of tabling the resolution compared to just 95 who uh, uh, voted against shelving it. Only one lawmaker, Representative Peter DeFazio, of course, in Oregon, voted present. Instead of moving ahead with articles of impeachment, most Democrats have appeared to prefer waiting to see if a stronger case for removal could be developed that would win broader public support. And they're eagerly awaiting next week's scheduled testimony uh, to two House committees by former special counsel Robert Mueller. That's going to take place next Wednesday. He's already stated that he will not make any comments outside of what's already in the report. So it's not clear how constructive that will be. But Republicans do have questions about the timing and the source of uh, much of uh, the uh, dossier and uh, the FISA warrant that began the whole investigation. So it could be a very fiery uh, time if Mueller is willing to take on questions that uh, don't go directly to the report, but what motivated the report moving forward. So that's all going to take place next Wednesday. My guess is it's not going to be all that eventful, given the limitations Mueller has placed on himself. Uh, but we'll wait and see if that uh, remains the case. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, 30 minutes after 5 o'clock the time. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. And we're back 35 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Well, a magnitude 5.3 earthquake struck off the Oregon coast um, this morning, according to officials, about 8 a.m. 
The earthquake shook about 175 miles west of Reedsport, according to the U.S. Geological Survey. The quake was likely too far offshore for any shaking to be felt on land. Now, it seems to me when you say there was a 5.3 earthquake that rumbled off Oregon's coast, I mean, is it really associated with Oregon when it's 175 miles out? Anyway, the tremor, it occurred at a depth of nearly nine miles in what's known as the Blanco Fracture uh, zone, an area of frequent seismic activity, so they're not making much of it. After the earthquake uh, rattled in California, Oregon's early warning system is still waiting for funding. So if the big one were to hit, and this by no means indicates that it's coming anytime soon, um, we're not really prepared as a state to warn people. Well, these kinds of quakes, as with previous swarms of the same uh, in the same area, aren't indicative of that larger shake that they tell us is imminent on the nearby Cascadia subduction zone, but it is interesting to make note of. They do serve as a reminder that the Pacific Northwest could be hit by a major earthquake at any time. So they're reminding us that we need to be prepared with water and medications and all of that stuff in the event that uh, we were to uh, find that uh, event occurring. Well, an Oregon Republican Party uh, contingent is launching a recall of uh, campaign against the governor, Governor Kate Brown, after a contentious legislative session that saw her send state troopers on a on runaway GOP lawmakers fighting her uh, climate change agenda, which she has since indicated she might take up through executive orders. The recall paperwork filed Monday by Oregon GOP chair Bill Courier uh, accused her of ignoring or overturning the will of the voters on driver's license for illegal aliens and tax increases, as well as denying citizens protection from the domestic terrorist threat known as Antifa. Governor Brown has subjected the people of Oregon to a long line of abuses of power while at the same time refusing to address their legitimate concerns, the recall statement says. It goes on to say she has fostered a toxic political environment that stifles meaningful discourse. She has threatened retaliation against her own citizens when her political agenda was not successful in the legislature. Ms. Brown's office did not respond uh, for um, a comment, but Mr. Courier said the party must collect about 280,000 valid signatures to force a special election on the recall, which would likely be held in November or December. Any gubernatorial recall has to be viewed as a long shot in Oregon, for that matter, anywhere. Only two governors have ever been recalled. But Mr. Courier says that Ms. Brown's ambitious progressive agenda has angered multiple groups, including small business owners, loggers, truckers, gun owners, and foes of mandatory vaccines. We have a critical mass of voting blocks right now. Ms. Brown said she was not backing down after 11 uh, Senate Republican lawmakers killed a Democratic cap-and-trade bill by fleeing the state for a week, denying the majority Democrats a quorum uh, near the end of the legislative session, you will recall. The Republicans ultimately returned two days before the session adjourned uh, to take care of other legislative business. The governor later praised lawmakers for an extraordinary session, citing bills on paid family and medical leave, health care funding, housing uh, investments, as well as Student Success, um, the Act, which raised about a billion dollars per year for education by hiking taxes on the state's highest earning businesses. We'll tell you more about whether or not they're going to challenge that. She also vowed to revisit the cap and trade bill, calling it unfinished business and hinted at executive action. 
Well, she says, uh, Ms. Brown said her colleagues in the legislature and I were elected by Oregonians with a clear mandate to address the challenges of climate change. We need to pass cap and investment program that will achieve the state's greenhouse gas reduction goals and so on. Well, the Oregon recall effort comes as the second undertaken in the West uh, this year against left-leaning Democratic governors. In Colorado, the Secretary of State's office approved last week petitions for a recall against uh, Democratic Governor Jared Paulus who took office in January, but that campaign is being led by the grassroots, not the state's party. Representative Ken Buck, who heads the Colorado Republican Party, said party leaders would keep an eye on the ambitious undertaking that needs 631,266 valid signatures in that state uh, to qualify for the ballot. We'll see what happens here in the uh, uh, state of Oregon. By the way, a recall effort against Democratic State Senator Tom Sullivan, backed by the Rocky Mountain gun owners, fizzled in June after meeting with National Democratic opposition. Sullivan's uh, son was killed in 2012 uh, in Aurora, a uh, theater shooting. A fourth Democratic uh, state legislator uh, resigned in May amid sexual misconduct allegations, which she denied after the launch of a recall campaign there. She was later cited uh, by Greeley police for providing alcohol to a 19-year-old, according to the Colorado Public Radio. The former Secretary of State, uh, Ms. Brown, succeeded former Democratic Governor John Kitzhaber after he resigned amid an uh, influence-peddling investigation back in 2015, then won a term in her own right in November. That effort has begun in earnest, and we'll let you know what happens next. Well, one commentator, Lars Larson, asked, is the juice worth the squeeze on the recall of Governor Kate Brown? For those who don't know already, that recall uh, has begun. Los Angeles was the first in 1903, followed by Michigan and Oregon, the first state to implement recall procedures for state officials in 1908, and more recently, Minnesota in 96 and New Jersey in 93. Recalls have been historically unsuccessful. Oregon has recalled two state officials previously, Oregon State Representative Pat Gillis in 85 and Oregon State Senator Bill Olson in 88. On Monday, the chairman of the Oregon Republican Party filed a paperwork to recall Governor Kate Brown following uh, the laws um, Democrats passed in the 2019 legislative session. She's threatened to usurp legislative power, uh, uh, the party leader Courier says. Uh, This is not the Oregon way. Kate Brown has threatened to use her executive powers to enforce climate uh, uh, change policies that not only rallied Republican senators, but also many conservative voters to boycott House Bill 2020. Well, again, after the failure of House Bill 2020 and her uh, push for climate change policies through the executive orders, it may raise enough attention to get voters to remove a governor who thinks she knows what's best for everyone. But again, it's doubtful given the high bar, uh, but not impossible. Well, a group of Oregon uh, industrial companies said uh, Tuesday that they're giving up on efforts to repeal the one billion dollar annually. Uh, in new business taxes passed by the legislature. The news uh, means the tax on Oregon sales will almost assuredly go into effect in January, eventually providing an 18% boost in state education spending, plus hundreds of millions of dollars for early childhood education. Though we will not be moving forward with the referral effort, we will continue to explore opportunities to minimize the negative impacts of this new tax on Oregonians by any means possible, including through legislative action or by a potential initiative in a future election. That's a quote from the Oregon Manufacturers and Commerce uh, said in a written statement, education boosters, meanwhile, immediately hailed the manufacturer's retreat while allowing for the possibility some other repeal effort might yet emerge. 
the new tax, um, the bill approved by lawmakers, aims to raise $2 billion in new business taxes for schools in each of um, a two-year budget cycle. The tax won't kick in immediately, though, and so would uh, raise a little less than half that in the next two years. Uh, businesses would pay uh, a tax of 0.57% uh, percent of sales inside Oregon above a million dollars. Groceries, taxes, hospitals, and long-term care businesses would be exempt. Businesses can subtract about 35% of their labor or capital costs from taxable sales. And to offset this anticipated increase in consumer prices, the plan cuts personal income tax rates by 0.25 percent points uh, for the lowest um, three of the state's four tax brackets. Tax opponents had already raised a million dollars toward the repeal effort, nearly all of that from lumber company executive Robert Frayers Jr. Opponents uh, are preparing to gather some Um, or rather were preparing to gather some 75,000 signatures to put the tax before Oregon voters. That has since been uh, withdrawn, but uh, opposition has not simply uh, withdrawn altogether. Well, the world recently learned that the American Psychological Association promotes polyamory, swinging, and relationship anarchy, as it is called. Its experts say it's healthy and ethical. Well, Leftists who run our nation's public schools love to hide behind the skirts of American Psychological Association when it comes to uh, sex ed. So in a recent column, um, it's been wondered out loud if they would uh, take their push uh, on the uh, young people who are prepubescent. Then it was found that they already have. It was a California teacher who discovered the LGBT consensual non-monogamy task force. She was reviewing the State Department of Education's health lessons mandate for the fall and stumbled across a term she didn't know. She uh, went to look it up and was led to the American Psychological uh, Psychological Association. California instructs teachers to talk to youngsters about sex partners. They are to avoid terms like boyfriend and girlfriend because some students may be non-monogamous. Some students talking about junior hires. This is the lesson plan for 12 year olds. There it is, the American Psychological Association reaching its um, uh, crusty paws all the way down to the pre-pubertal um, kids who are going to be taught in California public schools. Uh, for an exercise, uh, read through all of the California revised draft health education framework. Uh, it's revised April of 2019. It's a revision. The final version comes out this fall that embraces all of this. The Education Department tells teachers that 14-year-olds may have various gender identities and sexual orientations. Uh, Indeed, there are uh, an infinite number of ways an individual can express their individuality and sense of self. Special emphasis is to be given to non-heterosexual ways, however. Teachers should affirmatively acknowledge the existence of relationships that are not heterosexual by actively using examples of same-sex couples in all class discussions. All of this is to ensure the classroom is a safe environment, though it most certainly is not safe for the innocence of children. California is urging its teachers to bring outside sexperts into the classroom, provided they are vetted. Uh, Planned Parenthood is apparently pre-approved, and that gives you some indication of their vetting process. Oh, to preserve the innocence of young people in public education. 46 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. This is our final segment for today's program. Well, a decade of analysis from the Pew is detailing what global faith leaders already know. From China to Europe, 
from the Middle East to the United States, persecution of believers is climbing. No matter where you are, religious freedom is getting worse. Well, ahead of a State Department gathering that's being touted as the biggest religious freedom event ever, a new report showcases just how persecution is getting worse, especially for Christians, the most harassed religious group in the world, and becoming more widespread. Hostility against religious minorities spans long-standing, uh, long-standing hot spots in the Middle East and North Africa to Western context here in uh, the United States and in Europe, according to a comprehensive analysis that was released today from the Pew Research Center. Well, Christians endured more pushback than any other religious group each year from t- 2007 to 2017 when they faced harassment in 143 countries. That's one fewer than in 2016, but markedly higher than before, according to researchers. Well, this week, Sam Brownbra- uh, Brownback, rather, the U.S. ambassador at large for international religious freedom, has organized the second annual Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom. It's a summit in Washington to strengthen international commitments to religious freedom. Brownback said of the event, there is no common theology in this discussion, but it is towards a common human right, which is uh, the event is expected to draw up to a thousand religious and civil uh, society leaders from around the world. And that human rights is that everybody is entitled to be able to practice their faith peacefully and without fear. Now, while this is a a very large uh, summit on the subject of religious freedom, it is not exclusive to Christianity. But the recent um, Pew Research builds on earlier reports that looked a year-over-year change and offers a decade-long picture of religious freedoms, global decline, and the need for greater political action to curb that trend. Now, some might argue in some countries that political action is not what they're looking for, but let me just tell you what Pew has to say. Christians remain the largest and most harassed faith community, but Muslims are not not far behind, with reports of political or social oppression in 140 countries in 2017. Jews, the third most targeted group, were persecuted in 87 countries, despite having a disproportionately smaller population, about 14 million, than Christianity at 2.3 billion, and Islam at 1.8 billion. The religiously unaffiliated actually saw the largest rise in harassment over the period of the study, hitting a 10-year high in 2017 and most recent year for which this data is available. Well, over the decade from 2007 to 2017, government restrictions on religious uh, religion, rather, laws, policies and actions by state officials that restrict religious beliefs and practices increased markedly around the world, the researcher said, and social hostilities involving religion, including violence and harassment by private individuals, organizations or groups, also has risen since 2007. Well, the most recent data indicate that 52 governments, more than one in four, imposed high or very high levels of religious restrictions two years ago, up from 40 in uh, 2007. The highest level of social hostility involving religion were reported in 56 countries by the end of the study, up from 39 at the start. Big countries like China, Indonesia, and Russia are some of the worst offenders, and Christians are the biggest targets in those areas. By the end of the study, China, for instance, had boosted efforts to detain and deport uh, Christian missionaries. And in just the last year, reports from the State Department, the U.S. Commission on International Religious Freedom, and the World Watch List have called out China's dimming record as a violator of religious freedom, citing everything from the shuttering of hundreds of churches and a ban on buying Bibles online to the detainment of up to 2 million Uyghur Muslims.
Well, the Pew Report uses two 10-point indices to gauge levels of religious repression, one of which measures government restrictions and the other social hostilities. Both metrics are further divided into four categories for a total of eight measuring sticks for religious freedom. Besides uh, interreligious tension and violence, all other measures spiked between the years 2007 and 2017. The biggest rise comes in the category of hostilities related to religious norms, which refers to harassment and antagonism around things like women not abiding by religious dress codes. And religious freedom violations are most severe in the Middle East and North Africa. But restrictions and harassment are climbing everywhere. Europe saw the biggest jump in restrictions with its scores uh, doubling over the decade of the study. Legal limits on religious activities like efforts to restrict proselytizing uh, male circumcision are up dramatically in the continent. Uh, In 2007, five countries in Europe had restrictions on things like religious dress and religious symbols. Ten years later, 20 European countries had codified these restrictions in their respective lands. Well, China has some of the strongest limits on religious activities, and MENA has the worst um, government harassment. But social hostilities are increasing fastest in Europe, with its scores in the uh, category more than quadrupling from 2007 to 2017. Government favoritism of religious groups increased in every religion, including in Americas, in the Americas. The Middle East and North Africa have significantly higher rates of government favoritism of specific religious groups. 19 out of 20 countries in the Middle East have an openly favored religion, but rates are rising around the world. Islam is the most common state religion. 27 of 43 countries with official religions are Islamic. Just a handful of countries, Greece, Iceland, and the UK, Samoa, make special concessions and offers perks to Christianity not offered to other faiths. And according to Pew's findings, in only 26 countries, 13% um, are all religious groups generally treated the same. And while religion, or rather regional interreligious tension and violence decreased or stayed the same, it still grew in certain countries like Syria and in the Ukraine. Well, by the end of the study, and again, this uh, spanned 10 years, China, for instance, had boosted efforts to detain and deport Christian missionaries. And in just the last year, reports from the State Department, the U.S. Commission on Religious Freedom and the World Watch have called them out for their dimming record as a violator of religious freedom. Well, it is a a fascinating study. The State Department uh, summit uh, that's going to be held this week aims to combat this sort of interfaith feuding, uh, saying that we want to see really a a global grassroots movement around religious freedom. This is, again, from former Senator Brownback, who is the ambassador at large. We want to get the various faiths to bind together and to stand for each other's freedom of religion, not to agree on their religious tenets, but to support the notion that each has the freedom of Uh, the freedom to exercise their religious beliefs. Well, in all the categories, the Americas was the region with the fewest restrictions and hostilities. But even there, all measures point to rising levels of harassment and repression. Over the period of the study, the number of countries in the Americas uh, with noted government restrictions on religious activity increased from 16 to 28. In the United States, specifically, limits on religious activity and individual or social group hostilities based on religious Religion, rather, increased dramatically between the 10-year period of 2007 and 2017. More than 8 in 10, or 82 percent of Americans, cite anti-Muslim discrimination in the U.S., according to a separate Pew study that was released earlier this year. Anti-Semitism is also up sharply in recent years, especially in the shadow of the shooting at a Pittsburgh synagogue that killed 11 late last year. 
and a significant rise in hate crimes targeting Jews. Even Christians are feeling the effect of threats to religious freedom, both social and political. A full half of Americans believe evangelical Christians are subject to discrimination here in the U.S., up 8 percent since um, or rather from 2016. Well, around the world, the share of countries with high levels of social hostility is uh, ticking upward. Overall restrictions on and hostility toward religious groups remain a significant challenge as in 2017, 83 countries or 42 percent reported high or very high scores in that category figure that remained the same between 2016 and 2017 and falls just below a 10-year high of 43% in 2012. Well, as Christians, we should not be surprised. We were told by Jesus himself that that is to be expected. But the State Department confirming that hostility toward religion in general is increasing, but against Christianity more specifically. Now, this um, event that's taking place, this week's Ministerial to Advance Religious Freedom, billed as the largest human rights event in the U.S. State Department that they've ever held, is featuring 30 people who were invited to share theirs and their loved ones' stories of religious persecution, and among them are 13 persecuted Christians chosen by state to offer their stories. We'll tell you more about that as the week wears on, as this conference takes place, to draw a uh, to draw the, the world's attention to this growing problem. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Lysandra Barnes. She's the author of Rejected to Accepted, Learning to Love Myself for After Adversity. We're also going to talk with Max McLean. He's uh, going to be presenting C.S. Lewis, The Most Reluctant Convert, August 2nd and 3rd. We'll tell you all the important details. We'll also be giving away some tickets, so heads up for that. Hey, thanks so much for listening, and good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.